For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day, be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. That about says it, right? I'm only joking. Only joking. Oh my goodness gracious. Oh my goodness gracious. Wow. In our planning, someone said, gosh, that's the whole message. So I thought, well, maybe I'll take off today, go to the beach or something. Hey, behind me is a cross. Uh, something you'd expect to see on the center of a stage on Easter in a Christian church, right? It is the universal symbol of Christianity in a world where branding is everything. It's the most iconic brand of the last 2,000 years. Drive through any village or town, you'll see crosses on steeples, on churches, on schools. They're on lawns. They're on cemetery plots. People will wear them as jewelry. Uh, Major League Baseball players make the sign of the cross before they get in the batter's box. Uh, everyone knows about the cross. Here's what might surprise you. If you've never been to our church and you walk our three floors, and we have three floors, children on the bottom, youth on top, and we're all here, uh, you won't find any crosses. This is the first cross that's ever been in our church. You won't find statues or icon, icons or, or anything like that. We're not against those things. But we resonate with what Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 17, that all these things, including Sabbath and dietary laws, were shadow of the thing that would come. In other words, the reality, Paul said, is in Christ. So for those of us who are born again, Easter Sunday is every single day when we wake up. The resurrected Christ is in us every single day. So because we have the reality, we don't need the other things. Now, I do have to admit, we have one icon. Does anyone know where it is? Any, anybody? It's in the table, right? Here's a picture of it. It's the Calvary dove. Now, uh, some of our people have gone to Murrieta Bible College. This is the symbol of Calvary Chapel. In the 1960s, when Chuck Smith started Calvary Chapel, he never knew it would grow to almost 2,000 churches worldwide. But a young hippie graphic designer drew this, and it became the emblem. Because Chuck would preach about it's not by power, it's not by might, but it's the spirit moving. So that's the symbol of a dove falling. You remember Jesus' baptism, the 
Holy Spirit fell like a dove, so that became the symbol of Calvary. There's about 250 Calvaries on the West Coast, and I remember running into uh, a Spanish guy from California in Israel, and he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm a pastor. I'm leading a tour. He said, what kind of church do you pastor? I said, a Calvary chapel. He said, do you have the dove on the sign? And I'm like, yes. He goes, ooh, that's like Nike. So <laughs> that resonates to a certain group of people, but not to others. Uh, I was working for the Boeing company and I drove in one day and the lady who sat behind me said, uh, Bob, uh, you sound like a Philly guy and I think I know you grew up in Philly, but uh, it looks like you're from Texas. And I'm like, oh, what do you mean it looks like I'm from Texas? She goes, on your bumper, you had that emblem, Texas. I said, no, that's the Calvary, oh, forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> so why is there a cross here today? Well, I went back and looked at 25 Easter messages. Uh, 25 years, I've been telling you why I believe in God, reasons why you should believe in God. I've given you evidence that Jesus was God and he died and rose again. I preach from the Old Testament, the New Testament, from Jonah, the Psalms, Isaiah, uh, the Gospels, the Epistles. I've looked at this every way you can look at it and then I realized I've never talked about the cross. Not one time have I ever talked about the cross. This morning, I'm gonna present the cross to you as an infallible proof by the end that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God, that he died and rose from the, get, from the grave, and that you could have life in his name. Y'all ready? I wanna start in a scripture, should be read every Easter, 1 Corinthians 15, look at the screen. Paul said, for I delivered to you first that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, Friday, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again the third day, that Sunday. Saturday may be the only day when no one believed Jesus was alive. And that he was seen by Peter, then the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 at once, of whom the greater part remain to this day, but some have died. After that, he was seen by James, that was his half-brother, then by all the apostles, and then Paul said, last of all, he was seen by me, born out of due time. Two things stand out in that scripture I just read. One is according to the scriptures, and the other is eyewitness accounts. We saw all this. This can be corroborated. What Paul was saying is what you and I believe is certainly by faith. I don't want to diminish that, but it's faith based on a pile of evidence, pile of evidence. Peter put them both together when he wrote his letter. And he said, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables or myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. We were there of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to hide as a light that shines in a dark place. You know what Peter was saying? Peter was saying, listen, take my word for it. I was there. I saw Jesus in all his glory. I saw the resurrection. So did 11 others. And so did 500 other people. We can corroborate this. But if you don't want to believe all that, we have something stronger the prophetic word or a more sure word of prophecy. What was he talking about? 
He was talking about the 300 Old Testament prophecies of a Messiah that would come from Israel and die for the sins of the world. Can I tell the non-religious among you something? There is no religious book in the world that predicts the future, not one. You may have been lulled into that because you've heard about Bible prophecy. There's not one religious book that makes any predictions about the future. In Isaiah, God said, I am God, here's how I'll prove it to you. I'll tell you the end from the beginning, things of the future. 300 prophecies in, in a minute or less, can I give you nine just from Isaiah? You know the first two out of Isaiah, it's Christmas, right? A virgin conceives, bring forth a son, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. Uh, Isaiah 9 said he would be the Savior of the world. Isaiah 49, to both Jews and Gentiles. Remember Jesus handed the scroll in the synagogue and he read that portion of Isaiah that he would open blind eyes and deaf uh, ears and make the lame to walk, right? He would work miracles and of course we saw all that. Isaiah 53, oh my goodness. I preached on this one Easter. This is worth going home and just reading on your own. You've heard it before, who has heard our report? And to who has the arm been revealed, right? It talks about a man despised and rejected, of sorrows acquainted with grief, right? Listen to this. Surely he has borne our griefs. This is 700 years before crucifixion. It's written in the past tense. He has borne our griefs, has carried our sorrows, was esteemed, bruised, chastisement. We like sheep have gone astray. This writer is writing 700 years before crucifixion in the past tense where one day Jews will look upon whom they pierce, that's Zechariah, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for a firstborn son, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's worth the price of admission. Go home and read Isaiah. It is astounding. How about 10 other prophecies not in Isaiah? You know most of these. A king on a donkey, Zechariah 9, that's Palm Sunday. They cast lots for his clothing, Psalm 22. No bones would be broken. He was given gall and wine, Psalm 69. Spear, remember the spear in his side, blood came out? Zechariah 12. His posterity would serve him, Psalm 22. Betrayed by Judas, a friend, remember a kiss? Wow, Zechariah. 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. And then the silver was cast on the temple floor. Now, they used to give a real cool illustration when I was a new believer, where the odds of just these 20, not the whole 300, being fulfilled by one man, is to take silver dollars, six feet high, all over the state of Texas, mark one with a sharpie, take a human being, blindfold them, send that person to Texas, and if they could find that one marked coin, that would be the same odds as Jesus fulfilling all of these. But real experts, I think that was just an illustration. Real experts in statistics estimate the probability of these prophecies coming true in any one man is 10 to the 99, it's Sunday. I know most of you aren't good at math. Those are less odds than correctly selecting one electron out of all matter in the universe. It's a, a statistical improbability. And by the way, guess who wrote this? Peter, a fisherman. This isn't a graduate of Harvard or University of Jerusalem. A fisherman said this. We didn't follow cunningly devised fables. This is based on empirical, undeniable evidence. President Barack Obama quoted Martin Luther King Jr. more than any other president. He was so fond of one of 
King's quotes that he had in, inscribed on the Oval Office rug. It reads like this, quoting King, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Obama loved this quote because what he was saying is, though evil is in the world, we're moving to a better place. Through government and modernity, we're, we're righting a lot of wrongs. But if you go back in the context and read Dr. King's quote, it may be the best I've ever heard. In context, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross, but the same Christ will rise up and split history into A.D. and B.C. that so even the life of Caesar must now be dated by his name. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. You know what King was saying? King was saying that we're moving somewhere, but God is the prime mover. God is writing his story. God is the one who would take the injustice to put a vile, filthy man in a palace and the sinless son of God on a cross, but to reverse all that, and now even Caesar and every believer and every heretic and every atheist are dated by this man's name. Every time you look at a newspaper, every time you look at your cell phone, Every time you look at an email, you are reminded by the date of this one solitary life. How did it happen? How did it happen? The answer is the cross. The answer is the transaction upon the cross. Now, everybody look at our cross. The ladies did a wonderful job. It looks nice, it's shellacked. You put the Easter bunny next to it and we'd all get along, right? <laughs> Most of you know the cross was a sign of Roman power. It was an execution stake. It was death by humiliation. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. When Rome began to occupy Israel, estimates are they crucified 2,000 Jews a year. You know, I know you see those little pictures of the three crosses silhouetted. There would have been hundreds of them. Jesus, as a little boy going to the temple looking at Golgotha, would have seen men dying on a cross and would have probably thought about his death. Crucifixion was horrible. The word excruciating comes from the Latin cruce, which means cross. Again, it was for the worst of the criminals. They would break their legs. They would die. They couldn't breathe. They would leave them there for weeks. Animals would eat them from the toes up. Birds would peck their eyes out. They became roadkill. And yet when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, Corinth had replaced Athens as the intellectual capital of the world. These were the smartest people in the world. They were cosmopolitan, they were smart, they were rich. He writes what I call a cross-centered theology. I just shared that verse, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, right? In 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 17 and 18, he said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech. <laughs> Interesting. Why? To make the cross of Christ of, you know, no importance or void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is foolishness 
to really smart people, to intellectual people, to people who have it all figured out, the cross is foolishness. Now, I've said this before. Jesus, most people don't have a problem with Jesus. Most people like Jesus. I mean, who's going to argue with turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and a guy who puts children on his lap? Come on. He's the central figure of all history, and most people don't have a problem with him. They do have a problem with the cross. When Adam and Eve sinned, God made skins for them. That means an innocent animal died. In Genesis 22, a remarkable chapter, God calls this man Abraham, who's going to be the father of the Jewish nation, the father of all that believe, and he said, Abraham, take thy son, thy only son, just starting to paint a picture, thy only son, the son that thou lovest, first time the word love appears in the Bible, Genesis 22, and take him on a mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham saddles the donkey, he takes his son, he gets the wood. You know the story, God says, Abraham, no, I'll provide a sacrifice, there's a ram caught in the thicket. It sets up the idea of sacrifice. You know what Richard Dawkins, the atheist, has to say about that story? He said, by the standards of modern morality, I wonder where that came from, this disgraceful story is an example of simultaneously child abuse and bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. Think he's a little miffed at the cross? He's a brilliant writer. He's upset that this story would find its way into the Bible. Now, the idea is child sacrifice was rampant at the time God asked Abraham to do this, but God said, no, 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 we're not gonna do this. I will provide myself an offering. We get another glimpse when the people of Israel are sinning in their travels in Exodus, and fiery serpents are in the camp, and they're biting people, and they're dying, and Moses cries out to God, and God says, do this, take a serpent, Make of them brass, put them on a pole. All who look will live. Jesus said, as that serpent went on a pole and people were healed, so will the Son of Man go on a cross. He'll become sin, judged on the cross. Now remember, all the people had to do was look and live. He didn't say, come to Calvary Chapel at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock and you'll live. He didn't say, give into the offering, get baptized, read your Bible, and you'll live. All you had to do was look. But see, by looking, you believed, and you would be saved. It's not the cross that saved. Many men died on a cross. It's not Jesus' wonderful words. There are actually men who had greater words than Jesus. Mamondes was a Jew. He was profound. If you go to Israel today, you'll find, probably smaller than this room, a museum for Mamondes. Had Jesus not died and resurrected, there'd be a little museum for Jesus. It wasn't Jesus' words, it wasn't his healings, it wasn't even the cross that changed the way we look at time and changed our calendar. It was the transaction upon the cross. So what was the transaction? Jesus' entire life, he talked about his mission, which was to die. And I want you to think about this. Everybody in this room's mission is to live, right? Heart healthy, organic, uh, all these things we're into, you all are trying to stay here, right? 
And so have most religious leaders. They want everybody else to die, but they want to stay here. You know, Bin Laden sent 18 people in the World Trade Center, but he sure has tried to stay alive, right? Jesus is the only person in recorded history whose mission was to die. Why? Because he was a savior. He came to die and be the final sacrifice. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died on Friday, darkness covered the earth. Now, I used to be amused when I worked in the corporate world, and I worked there for 12 years. Every good Friday, I could set my watch. Between 12 and 3, someone would say, they look out the window and say, oh my gosh, it's overcast. Right? Superstition is amazing. Of course, I would sit there and say, I'll bet you it's not overcast in Miami or Hawaii right now. Darkness came over the whole earth. You know what it would be like if you went to an 11 o'clock service on a sunny day and walked out and there was darkness? <laughs> You'd freak. It would be the eeriest thing you've ever seen. I've experienced a little bit of it. I was in New York the day after 9-11 with the Billy Graham team. And because of all the dust and, you know, what had happened, it almost looked dark at 8 in the morning in New York. It was eerie as all get out. Why did darkness come over Calvary? Sin was being judged. On that cross was every sin ever committed. Think of the worst thing that's ever happened in your life. It was at Calvary. Think of the worst thing you've ever read in the newspaper. It was on Calvary. Think of the worst thing in history. It was on Calvary. Darkness is judgment. The darkness and judgment of God. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus died for sin. The reason why the cross is an affront to intellectual people is because it tells us something about who we are. The cross tells us that we are incurably greedy, covetous, unkind, and immoral. And that's not what people want to hear when they dress up on Easter Sunday. We want to cover all that. We're good people after all, right? And God's going to judge on a curve. We live in a world today where athletes make, get this, $20 million. $20 million. 50 years ago, athletes had to work in the offseason. Now they make $20 million. If you made $20 million just one year, you'd be set for life and have generational wealth. They make it every year. But guess what they're miffed at? You know, the guy making $30 million. And the guy making $30 million is miffed at the guy making $40 million. Why are we incurably that way? The cross tells us why. The cross tells us who we really are. Jesus died on Friday for sin. Darkness came on Calvary because of sin. Jesus believed that through love, the cross would somehow become not just a symbol of sin and death, but a symbol of even more powerful, redemptive love. Whatever you believe about the cross of love, Christ believed this. He died for love. Jesus died for every human heart, for every person who had ever sinned. He who knew no sin became sin that we would become the bride of Christ. 2,000 years later, his death is the most important, most remembered death in history. Pilate, who wanted above all to be a friend of Caesar, ended up writing in Hebrew the language of the people of God, in Greek, the language of the culture world, and in Latin, the language of the Roman Empire, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
Jesus outlasted, outmaneuvered, and outloved every group, every power. Mostly, he outloved everybody. For Jesus in the garden had one agenda I'll die on Friday. On Friday, he died for love. It was his choice. It wasn't Pilate's choice, Herod's choice, or Caesar's choice. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Today, the cross is the most widely recognized symbol in the world. The symbol of execution has now become the symbol of love and of grace. The cross is very ubiquity causes us to forget what a strange symbol it was. It has changed from the symbol of an empire's power into a symbol of the suffering of the love of God. It has changed from an expression of ultimate threat into an expression of ultimate hope. It came in a sense to express the the exact opposite of its original purpose. The original purpose was to humiliate people in death. And it turned around to bring people to eternal life. How does that happen? One word, resurrection. One word, resurrection. I already told you, thousands of people died on crosses. Why does this one put Jesus at the center of history? Why is this one on every building we've ever seen? Why is this one on every grave plot we've ever looked at? Resurrection. Andy Stanley said, if a man can predict his death, die and be raised from the dead, I'll believe whatever that man says. That's biblical math. Want me to give it to you again? If a man can predict his death, die, and rise from the dead, I'll believe whatever that man says. When I became a Christian, somebody asked me, have you ever read the Bible? 12 years of Catholic school, my answer was no, I never read the Bible. Everything I told you today, I did not know in that day. But I was read the words of Jesus. You know what Jesus said? I'm the way to God. I'm the truth of God. And you can have life in God. And I believe what that man says. There's a popular book out today called Sapiens. I see it in bookstores all the time. I didn't realize it sold over 10 million copies. A young millennial said, Pastor Bob, you better read this book. People in your church are reading this book, young people. And a lot of others in our culture. Uh, years ago, I read almost everything written by an atheist, and then God said, okay, that's enough. You know, stop reading all that stuff. But because somebody told me this, I went out, and I cursory reading of Sapiens, about 20 minutes, and then I bought the book and read it in its entirety. It's written by Yuval Harari. I'm sure I'm butchering his name. He's an Israeli, Harvard grad. Bill Gates endorses it, Pulitzer Prize winners. Uh, Because he's from Israel, he uses the Bible, he plays on the Bible a little. He has a chapter called the Tree of Life and a day in the life of Adam and Eve and the flood, but it has nothing to do with any of that. Um, His opening chapter is an animal of no significance. That's you and me. And he makes it almost read kind of like the Bible. About 13.5 billion years ago, matter, energy, and time came into existence known as the Big Bang. The story of these fundamental features is called physics. 300 years ago, after the appearance, matter and energy coalesced into complex structures called atoms. That's chemistry. 3.8 billion years ago, a planet called Earth, these molecules came together. That's biology. 
70,000 years ago, organisms belonging to the species Homo sapiens started to form even more elaborate structures. Subsequent development of these human cultures is called history. There were humans long before there was history. Animals such like modern humans first appeared about 2.5 million years ago. But for countless generations, they did not stand out from the myriad of other organisms, i.e. other animals, which had certain habitats. Now again, I read this book, and listen, I'm not putting him down, and I'm not putting smart people down, but it's kind of like, like Swiss cheese. I could drive a Mack truck through his arguments. But you might say I have an ax to grind, right? My heart broke when I read this, because I realized this. People that believe, like you and me, we need faith, right? We have a mountain of evidence, but at the end of the day, we, we have faith. Hebrew says, by faith, Adam, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Moses, right? At the end of the day, we have faith. But so does everyone who doesn't believe. Do you realize if you don't believe in God, you need faith? You need faith that you can prove he doesn't exist. You need faith in believing there's nothing after this life. For the people who buy the book Sapiens and say, I knew it, you need faith in this author. You have to have faith to believe he's right about all his arguments. You still need faith. But the reason my heart broke is that people who want to believe were nothing but animals. Isn't it funny that 10 million of them still need a story? They still need a story. They need a story that says in the beginning and Here's what happened, and here's where we're going. They still need a story. Isn't it remarkable God gave us a story? And the story is that you're the apple of his eye, and every hair on your head is numbered, and he made you distinct from every animal that ever exists so that you can think and feel and have transcendence. Uh, it's getting quiet in here because it's getting a little heavy. So we need a comedian. So I picked Woody Allen, if you know who he is. Woody Allen said, more than any time in history, humankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other leads to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose wisely. <laughs> Paul chose widely. In Galatians 6.14, he said, may it never be that I would boast in anything but the cross of Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and me to the world. Paul did what I did on a college campus. I intellectually looked at the gospel story, and then I saw through the cross my own heart and realized I'm not good enough. I need a Savior. I realized on the other side of the cross was real freedom, that I could know God and enjoy him forever. I realized that God loves me and that I could be fully known. And 36, 37 years later, God has proved that out. I'm not a betting man, but I would bet everything I had. That 2,000 years ago, no one's going to stand up on a stage like this and say, you know what, I've been free of alcohol and drugs because I read Sapiens. Or I just read about the Big Bang or E equals MC squared. And guess what? It put my marriage back together again. Or we're going to abolish the wrongs 
of history because of chemistry and physics. But how many thousands have stood up and said because of a wonderful Savior, all these things have happened? Yeah. George MacDonald said something everybody has to realize. I can only say with my whole heart that I hope we have a Father in heaven, but this man, Jesus, knows that we do. See, the best Bob Gaglione can do is say, I hope there's a Father in heaven. Man, I'm 98% there, but there's 2% of me that doesn't know because I'm finite. It's by faith. But there is a man who knows Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If, I, if it wasn't true, I wouldn't have told you. He talked more about the Father than any man that ever lived. He told us about heaven. He told us what God was like. He corroborated everything that was in Scripture. This man knows. On a cross, we see the bar of God's standard. The bar of God's standard was the top of the cross. Animals didn't suffice. All those Passover animals, they, they were just a shadow. Remember that? But then there came a man who knew no sin. Sinless, right? Judas. Remember what Judas said? I betrayed what? Innocent blood. Remember what the centurion, a Roman soldier, said? This man has done nothing wrong. As, as, as the spotless lambs were being inspected and slaughtered, there was testimony after testimony to Jesus' innocence. So he's at the top. Now, if I was to ask you, who would, who would be like second? Who's really good? Most people in the survey would say Mother Teresa. She was really good. Uh, if you were on a subway, people would say, oh, I think the Pope's a good guy. Billy Graham uh, was the greatest evangelist in the history of the world. He would be here. I've been a pastor for 25 years. <laughs> Mother Teresa, there's been a lot written about her dark night of the soul, her struggle with doubt. There's been a lot of bad popes. And Billy Graham said, if he gets to heaven, it would only be by God's grace, and most of you know me. I think most of the world is indifferent to the gospel because they think God's going to judge on a curve. But we kind of look here and say, oh my gosh, even the greatest person falls way short. That's the message of the cross. Paul said in Romans, if you believe with your heart and you got to believe, you can't get caught up in a moment. This isn't a one-time act. There's another transaction, it's called the transaction of the heart. Where God melts a human heart, where you come to the end of your rope, the end of your ignorance, the end of your arrogance, the end of your goodness, and say, wow, with a mouth, I need a savior. When you do that, life begins in all its fullness. Doesn't mean life will be smooth, doesn't mean we won't have rough patches, doesn't mean we don't suffer all the things other people suffer. 
But there's a transformation where we get spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. So many things we see in the gospel come true and we know God. There was a day when I heard this for the first time and I was asked to walk an aisle. It's pretty scary. So I'm not gonna ask anybody to walk an aisle. I'm gonna ask everybody to close their eyes just for a second. And here's the question I'm gonna ask. If you've never ever heard this story this way and it's resonating with you, if you were like me and you never read the Bible and you're saying, oh my gosh, I get it. And by the way, when I say caught up in a moment, this isn't a timeshare. You know, we're not trying to get you to do something on a Sunday morning in Easter you don't want to do, but maybe somebody's been talking to you for a long, long time. Maybe you've been reading, maybe you're a seeker. This is the first time you've ever heard it presented this way that there's a God with his arms open wide that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but the whole world would be saved. And for the first time in your life, you want to pass from death to life and know that your name is written in heaven. If this, for you, is a day where you say, Pastor Bob, yeah, I want to do this. I want to give my life to Jesus. I'm not going to make you do anything. But with every eye closed, can you just slip your hand in the air? Just slip your hand in the air so I can know that you're tracking with me. You've never heard this and you're like, today is the day. Easter 2019, I would like to know the Savior of the world. Just slip your hand in the air. Almost a whole row here. <laughs> awesome. Three people in the back on my right-hand side. Fellow in the middle. Lady up front. Nobody looking around. Several people in here. Anybody else? I've never heard this. I've never heard this. Several people over here. You know what I would like you to do, but I won't force you? In the first service, as we sang a song, I'll meet you right down here, and people will applaud like no get out, because the angels say, in heaven, there's great applause. These folks wrote their name and put it on this sticky on a cross. Wouldn't that be a great way to remember Easter 2019? That you put your name on a cross and God wrote your name in heaven. <laughs>